0: Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran.
1: Thanks for joining us. I'm Ingrid Cochran, your host for today, and I have my co-host with me, Matthew Portel. Matthew, introduce yourself to the audience.
2: Hey, hey, I'm Matthew Portel, I'm the Director of Education and Outreach here at Paces Connection.
1: Thank you for joining us as we kind of dig into a very important topic today. Um, We wanted to take some time to reflect on the Holocaust as tomorrow is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And we have really been focusing on intergenerational and historical trauma for the entire month of January. So we're going to continue that conversation today, not focused uh, entirely on the Holocaust, but definitely um, looking to the past um, and how we have um, you know, experiences and events in our past that have really changed the fabric of our understanding of being human beings. And the Holocaust is one of those. Um, and so... You know, just to kind of um, reflect, you know, I definitely want to, as I think back on me personally and my experience with my understanding of the Holocaust, especially as someone who is not a part of the Jewish community, um, I first learned about it, at least in my memory, uh, in high school, reading the Diary of Anne Frank. And I just remember being um, very much engrossed in in the book, But I think as a young person, I think I was probably about 14 at the time. um, uh, I was very much uh, not disconnected from the realities of the Holocaust. And so as I became older and engaged in other um, sources of media around the Holocaust, I became very aware of just how um, insidious um, this type of human behavior is And that genocide is um, something that is even more prevalent in our society than I knew at the time. And so, um, Matthew, what was your first understanding of the Holocaust?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think similarly. um, But I think mine, honestly, now that I think back, was high school. Um, And again, we were reading about it, um, but it, it didn't connect, right? Although my grandfather was in World War II, um, I remember telling stories about his experience. Um, but even in that, at that age, I still didn't make the connection. I think really when I was a senior, we went to Washington, D.C., and I went into the Holocaust Museum. Hmm. Um, and that, just the visual um, of experiencing walking through there and seeing the giant pile of shoes and reading the placards of... What occurred over those couple decades was just, or decade, really. Um, that's where it really connected to me um, when I realized the magnitude of lost genocide and just complete destruction um, that the Jewish community had had endured, and that was mind blowing to me. Yeah, the
1: sheer magnitude, you know. The estimates are are low, but they estimate that about seven million um Jews were killed during the Holocaust. And that number is just kind of incomprehensible. But when we think about that within the context of our understanding of how trauma passes on through generations, then it's kind of um we we understand why our first research on intergenerational transmission, came from studying um, the children of Holocaust survivors. And I think this is something that's interesting for me. And, and as I think on how the Holocaust impact me directly uh, as someone who is in the field of psychology, um, my I really began to get a really clear understanding of how um, influential This event had been on the field when I was in um, grad school and I began to get a very clear picture of the history of psychology. And essentially um, all of modern psychology, especially social psychology, has come from um, people, researchers, scientists really grappling with the Holocaust and trying to understand how an event... Uh, can happen on that scale in modern times. And so there are a lot of you know research studies during that time. Uh, again, like I said, it spawned pretty much the field of social psychology where we begin to study you know human group human behavior. Um, but Rakoff, uh, Vivian Rakoff, he did a study on the children of Holocaust survivors in nineteen sixty six. And this is where we get our initial understanding of intergenerational transmission. And so um, for those of you in the audience who have been um, you know, sticking with us this month, we have talked about how uh, intergenerational transmission of trauma and uh, also known as historical trauma is uh, one of the uh, drivers for uh, differences in life, inspecta- life expectancy and um health outcomes, and also just, you know, the way that we engage in coping and, and other kind of cultural differences. Uh, and so I think that uh, our understanding of intergenerational transmission of trauma is largely due to this event. And we need to look to the lessons of um, a lot of things, how um, the, what the research says about how we, um, transmit trauma through generations, but then also look to our understanding of human behavior and how these types of situations can even happen so that we can be preventative. Um, And then the lessons of how we heal after. So when we have these um, genocide and other historically traumatic, uh, collectively traumatic events, what does it look like to heal after that? And so there's, so much to discuss there. But I definitely think the, the starting point is prevention, and then healing.
2: Well, and Ingrid, when I when when we said we were going to talk about the Holocaust, of course, I, I wanted to dig a little deeper. And I started processing what you just said, how can something like this occur and um, can it happen again, and I, I think we'll get to later in the show, it genocide has happened in our lifetime. Um, but I, when I was looking, when I was researching it, I found it so interesting and, and fascinating on a, on a, on a, on some levels where, you know, and Hitler began his reign in 1933, one of the first things he began to do was ban and burn books. Um, that was one of the first steps and then um, allowing uh, forced fertilization occurred just a few months after that and then prohibiting Jews from owning land and then prevented them from being newspaper editors. And I mean, allowed then removed any type of health, uh, insurance. And and, I mean, you see how, and this was in a very rapid amount of time in, in six months, six months to a year, it didn't, it wasn't like this long, drawn out process. Um, you can see how the dehumanization of people, Began to be grounded from the moment he stepped into his role, right of leadership and of of, of of Germany. And so, the more you dig into it, the more it make it puts pause and say, okay, let's look back um, and see what happened because we would never ever want to see something like that again um, in our world, right? Um, and like I did say it has happened maybe obviously not to that scale. Um, but it has occurred in our lifetime. And I'm very sad to say, I didn't even know it was happening. Um, when I was in high school, it was happening, uh, in Rwanda, 800,000 people, um, were killed in genocide in Rwanda in 1994. I was a junior and had no idea. I think even today, it's still happening across some countries. Um, but you don't, it's not something you're, you're hearing about, um, in the mainstream for sure. But I, I just, it, it, it almost, um, makes me sick at my stomach to think about, um, being in that time and going through and watching this unfolding of, um, what would be one of the largest world crises ever experienced. Yeah. I,
1: I think this is also a, when we talk about prevention, you know, there's, we've talked before about historical trauma and how the oppression of, of specific cultural groups is always coupled with policy always. And so, um, you know, whatever um, your beliefs may be, we do have clear evidence that as we begin to chip away at the rights of others, this um, can be a slippery slope and so it can start with family separation. it can start with um, you know infringing on people's right to vote. but there's always policy that comes uh, before these types of events and um, even in the past when we look at um, other wide wide scale um, genocide you um, we spend a lot of time in in history examining the Holocaust, but there have been other time periods where, and 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 it's largely due to the not being in our modern times um, that we've had large scale genocide. Um, you know, obviously, um, when I was doing some research on historical trauma uh, in the past, I came across a very interesting article that was really about climate science and how um, scientists were looking at um, the, the climate patterns of North America and were kind of reverse engineering um, the climate patterns to see um, kind of the overall picture when it comes to climate change. And one of them realized that there was a very clear um, you know, shift in our climate patterns in North America uh, in the, um, in the 1600s. And it was essentially saying that there was the genocide of the indigenous people in North Comer- in North America was so extensive that it changed the climate. Um, and it, we also know that the, um, you know, the slave trade here in the, um, Americas is also the estimates are about six to 10 million, um, Africans um, killed during the slave trade. Um, And then there is um, uh, King Leopold of Belgium, King Leopold II, who, um, um, during his reign, he was responsible for the genocide of about 10 million Africans in the Congo um, as he was uh, attempting to strip the area of rubber. Rubber trees. It, it's just, um, in, in each one of those instances, was um, definitely um, involved policy and lawmakers and um, regulations. All were approved at that time um, and moved forward with the genocide of people over land. Um, obviously, labor exploitation. Um, and resources on a wide scale. And, you know, genocide is so insidious and has been um, enacted for several different reasons, but it seems like no reason is is good enough. And so it's it's mind boggling that we have um, several instances of genocide in our past where millions of people have been killed for one cause or another
2: yeah and I think that's that's something that um talking about is challenging, I think, um, in a lot of spaces and places, because by no way would I ever want the perception that we're comparing anything to what happened to the all the Holocaust, but what we're what I think I always try to get across is the Holocaust was a grander scale of things that have occurred over time in history, right um, that the Um dehumanization of people based off of whatever, right? In Rwanda, it was the different types of cultural um ties to the different tribes, right? It's and the leader of one convinced uh the the people within his culture that they were like cockroaches and they had to be exterminated. And um here Hitler had built this giant propaganda machine um of how the Jews were having such a negative impact and were non-human, right? Like. It 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 isn't, it's very complex, but and and I think there's times when people say, well, that can never happen again. Or, you know, we we're we're smarter than that, or we now have technology, we know better than that. Um and I think what what I see as fearful is the polarization, not just in our country, right, but across the globe on issues that people there's no there's no middle ground. Um, and that brings me pause and saying how can we look back and look at all of these events over time and say, how can we prevent these things from occurring again? Um, because I would never want that in my lifetime, the lifetime of my child or any of my descendants for that matter. Right. Um, but it is true how quickly things can get out of control. Um, when that propaganda machine or like what, what Hitler did, um, is meticulously start taking the rights of people, um, over a very quick period of time.
1: Yeah, the dehumanization is, is probably the scariest aspect of this, is that you can be, you know, as we think about just individuals, that you can be essentially um, brainwashed into believing that, you know, another human being, um, your neighbor even, is less than you and is the source of of your societal ills and should be exterminated. Um, The susceptibility for humans to even engage in this behavior is concerning. And I know that, you know, as a black person living in America, this is something I'm always concerned about. You know, people, like you said, people say that it can never happen again and things of that nature. But um, having a historically traumatic background lets me know full well that this could happen again. Um, You just need the right conditions or the right person in power or or essentially the wrong person in power. Um, And these things could happen because we are always kind of on the edge of dehumanizing each other. Uh, And I know this, I'm talking about kind of American experience, um, where it's really focused on race. Um, but it could be anything. Um, it, it's it's religion, it's um, gender expression, it's uh, sexual orientation, it's it's income, um, you know, poverty, homelessness. We often will dehumanize each other over all of those issues. Uh, and so our ability to, remain connected and to see the humanity in each of us is essential to our shared collective experience on this planet. And, um, and the Holocaust is a, is an example of how things can go very wrong when we don't prioritize our connection with each other. And when we don't, um, see our differences as things to be, um, celebrated. Or even when we, um, you know, don't believe that there are superiority in our beliefs and that our beliefs are better than the beliefs of others. Uh, And so, you know, the the Holocaust, again, so many lessons there. I think that um, we can always, we can definitely see the playbook of how things get started when we start to become very polarized and Use policy against certain groups. Um, we also can very clearly see that people with the historically traumatic background um, can and do see those those um, those signs. They're they're sensitive to them more than others. So when there is um, you know talk in the news about the Jewish community, um, people are. A uh, very sensitive, because of you know our past, our collective past. We understand what's what's at stake here when we uh, engage in these tactics or dehumanize certain groups, and so there's a great deal of sensitivity there um, that is adaptive and should be should be honored.
2: Well, and I think that that brings up a good point: is um, we're still seeing the impacts of today. We see um, synagogues being impacted. We see the Jewish community being um, still at this point, right? Over time, we see people that say that the Holocaust doesn't even exist. And so I think, although we've made strides, there's still this stronghold. And I think, like you said, bias is always going to play a role, right? Discrimination is always going to be a role there if we're not humanizing each other. And then you said something else too, that made me really think um, about the role of uh, how people are discriminated against for whatever. And it made me think about the religious crusades, right? Way back in time and how that religion played such a role um, and the, 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 the dehumanization that the crusades played and the death that spun through all of that time of history of the religious crusade. So, I mean, I think you're right. It, it's We just have to look at this as, as it could be any group at any point, right? Um, based off of whatever um, is perceived as um, unsafe or against or less than um, over time. It doesn't mean necessarily that anyone um, can never experience such a tragedy that the Jewish community with the Holocaust and continues to um, experience with the modern day impact of what happened. I think white supremacy uh, obviously is very live and well. Um, we've seen that over our lifetime um, and I think even more in the last 10 years where um, it's been now very out in the open. Uh, and I think we. I see I watch the news often and I know you don't, Ingrid, and it's probably is that you don't. Um, but I see stories all the time about things that are occurring today. And it's it's um, it's not only disheartening, but it's also a slight a, a tight a tad bit uh, frightening um, in the fact that these perpetuations of hate continue um, for so long.
1: Yeah, it's it is a reflection that, even though there are lessons, in our past um, that not everybody has learned them. Uh, and and it also is a reflection of those in power who are not uh, in touch with their own trauma and they're in engaging in their own healing can then um, weld that power in a way to create division, which can then easily spin into um, where we get to the point where we are dehumanizing each other. Um, it's definitely playing out in America politically now it's actually calmed down a little bit but um but this is um it is very concerning to to and like you said frightening to understand that um it's kind of a a revolving a revolving door who who is it going to be this time based on what um what's going on in the world um and and it is often driven by white supremacy, but also, uh, again, going back to kind of religion and um, the belief that there's scarcity in resources that we that we can go and take land and resources from others, uh, and and if they don't um, if they don't allow that to happen through you know strong strong armed means, then the next thing is to engage in genocide, and. Um, This is, for me, especially from a kind of an evolutionary psychology lens, um, because this has happened over and over again throughout history, um, we have to begin to see this as part of our human makeup, that this is possible. And one of the reasons why it's possible is because we are social animals and we can easily fall into tribalism based on the way that we... um, see the world as um, you know we see others as a threat um, others outside of our circle as a threat and so as we have evolved as a species and we are living in a different kind of social structure we need to uh, embrace um, each other as a part of a collective as opposed to falling into tribalism and we do that through many means and First one obviously is parenting, and um, as just as trauma is passed on through generations, um, so can um, empathy be passed on through generations. And so that is would be a first step. Um, but we can also engage in healing practices to heal the past, uh, and actually, um, Germany has done a great job of engaging in healing since, and again, also uh, tied to policies and procedures that they have put in place. Um, and that's something that, you know, we'll expand on more as we come back from the break. But definitely, um, you know, the possibilities when it comes to healing and um, and our ability to be resilient, even after things as hideous as genocide um, is there. And it it also points to kind of our our human species being able to rebound and to build better connections. And so I think um, this is something to think about when we look at our own kind of American experience around race is how do we make amends and, um, and promote healing for Americans internally based on this issue of tribalism and definitely, you know, worldwide.
2: Yeah, definitely, and I think we have a model, um, and it's been done. And I, I, I constantly hear of what does that look like, and how could it ever be done, and how could we, you know, how could we do reparations and healing? Well, we we've seen it; it's been done. Um, and I think that uh, this idea that reparations are I have to pay for what my great grandparents did is so misguided, and it's such a it's such a um, distorted idea of what the impact of reparations are, right? It's a very surface level um, application of what that means. And so when we return, I can't wait that we talk about what does that healing process look like um, in the past and potentially how, what will that look like in our future, right? For the, for the uh, historical traumas that we have seen within our country, uh, because I think it's, It's it's possible. Uh, We just have to be able to see to uh, the implications of healing and how that will impact our own community. So we'll get to that right after the break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past. On history, culture, and trauma, Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests, We'll explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name, followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran.
1: Thank you. We are back uh, again. I'm Ingrid Cochran and I'm joined by my co-host Matthew Portel. Uh, in the first half, we were uh, kind of reflecting on our, our experience or our, our reactions to um, the Holocaust as we were coming up as children. Um, and we also talked a bit about how important it is that we uh, prevent the um, the dehumanization of, of people moving forward uh, as we think through what does it mean to ensure that we don't have another incident of wide um, scale genocide. And um, some of our reflections brought up the importance of engaging in healing. Um, obviously, we want to prevent that, but uh, it is extremely important that we heal um, Collectively traumatic experiences, so that we have the ability to lessen the um, historical trauma or intergenerational trauma that can result. And um, there are many many ways to do this. The Rye Center out of Richmond, California, does a great job of of um, really um, conceptualizing what it means to uh, be healing centered um, when it comes to kind of a, a nationwide or worldwide scale. And I really appreciate what they have um, brought to the table in this conversation of healing historical trauma. Um, And I often uh, quote them and uh, give them all the praise for their um, interacting layers of healing and trauma infographic. And so, When we look at an incident like genocide, um, it is one of the ways that we have this large legacy around um, the impact of uh, these collectively traumatic experiences like enslavement, genocide, colonization, um, widespread economic exploitation, um, land theft, and um, really the implications of white supremacy. Uh, they have um, put together this infographic, and it outlines what's needed for for healing. And one of the um one of the things that they highlight when it comes to healing is truth and reconciliation. And this is, um, I think one of the the first steps when it comes to um, being able to move past uh, an extremely um, traumatic experience on a, on a collective scale. And I think that from what I've read Germany has done a a, a good job or has really laid out the landscape of how one does um, reconcile and engage in truth telling. And I think that they have a bit of a playbook as well as to how you heal and one of those, you know, one of the first step is to acknowledge the damage done. Yeah. Uh, but the Rise Center does a great job of of highlighting what's needed. And I think that truth and reconciliation is, you know, the first step in, in how we uh, begin to heal. We have to tell the truth about the past.
2: You know, you know, this, um, I spent a little bit of time in New Zealand at the end of last year in September. And it was one of the most inspiring things I think I left from when I went to New Zealand to find out they are going through this process um, of truth-telling, right? Of, of rewriting history books and how it, is, how it is presented to children with the input of the Maori people or the indigenous people of New Zealand who experience colonization, right? So, And to hear how the communities were all bought in, um, and that the Maori culture is such a um, upfront piece of who New Zealand is, and they've made it a part of who New Zealand is. But hearing how this all came about, and I, I, I literally thought about that graphic of the, that the RISE Center created of the so, so, uh, socio-ecological model of each of those tiers. And I thought, wow, they're really going through some of these processes of how do we start on that history, legacy, and structure, move down to systems to the community, all the way down to the individual to begin healing what had happened in the colonization of of the people of New Zealand. And it encouraged me. It even encourages me now to know that California is going through a a similar process. There's a bill that passed where it is a truth-telling bill about how they're going to um, teach history in schools. I, that's that's a great first step. And even with when we're getting back to kind of the Holocaust, um, this is this kind of restitution and 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 actually um, reparations was used post Holocaust uh, from 1945 until 2018. There's been over 86 billion dollars allocated. Um, and compensation to the victim and their heirs. So not just those directly involved, but people, descendants of those who were um, uh, experienced the genocide of Nazi Germany. So these things are happening, right? We know that they're happening. Acknowledging is first, and that's huge. But we have to do more than just acknowledge. When we know that people have land taken away from then, when people, um, their labor is what built the, the empires of, of, of using the labor that they built the empire. We have to acknowledge that and figure out how systematically we can heal that. And it's not just, oh, we're sorry it happened, but we're sorry it happened. And here's how we're going to take steps to heal it. Um, and I know that seems so foreign to so many people, um, but we know it's doable. It's been done and it's happening, um, all over the world. And it's, it's time that we examine our own processes and quit saying it happened a long time ago, or, um, the, what I hear all the time is why should I have to pay for what my great grandparents did? Right. And, and we're, we're disconnecting the historical context from, and dehumanizing people, right. For my own personal, but this is my, I'm only talking about my experience and not looking at the, the bigger picture.
1: Yeah. And just not just experience, but for my own comfort. Right. And so when we say, why should I have to pay for things Absolutely. that were done in the past? It's, you're essentially saying, I don't want to be uncomfortable or, um, or, or, Um, have less money or, you know, all the different ways that we believe that we will um, suffer if we pay back or give reparations or uh, push for restitution for uh, our past wrongs. Um, I definitely think that, um, you know, with truth and reconciliation, I, I believe it's kind of the first step. We should definitely engage in it. And um, text history books is is a perfect example of that, uh, which makes me think about, you know, all the books that have been banned that are related to the Holocaust um, in schools and things of that nature. Um, But then after we engage in some truth-telling, I don't want to move too fast, because I will say that most don't like to engage in truth-telling, but once we have done that, we then need to move to kind of what what needs to be done in response? Um, so we need to acknowledge and tell the truth about um, our past wrongs, but then we need to follow up with that, and really push for restitution, reparations, um, redistribution of of um, resources, and things of that nature. Essentially, putting our money where our mouth is in and ensure that we uphold communities that have been divested from or been aggressed against um, because beyond telling the truth there is more to um healing than just the truth-telling uh, aspect of things you also have to say you know i understand the impact and um and pay back debts, uh, and so I know that um, Germany did engage in in reparations for the um, Jewish community, and um, and even now still regularly engage in um, truth telling and reconciliation. And I think that that is a lesson to be learned for all other. All, all places in the world, because this is, again, genocide and this dehumanization and tribalism that we engage in is something that's present um, in, in every corner of the world, uh, which makes me think about why it's so difficult to um, engage in um, collective healing in this way, that you know, it's why it's so difficult to tell the truth, to um, push for reparations and restitution. Uh, And I think the reason why is because um, the narrative that we have um, collectively used is to blame the victim. Um, So uh, instead of, um, you know, we, we, we dehumanize, but we also villainize. So we have, again, kind of like you said, the propaganda machine that tells you that this group is somehow less than because of whatever reason we're picking uh, today and that that means that it's okay to to take their land to take their homes to take their rights and to take their lives Uh, and then we need to be able to clearly outline how we will um reverse that narrative because after it's been told for generations um, people actually believe this they see the victims as the aggressors or the villains. in In order for us to move forward in a real way, after we engage in that in that truth telling and that reconciliation, we then must um, do our due diligence to um, to move into what it means to to repair relationships, what it means to um, you know pay your debts to their, um, through generations. Um, and often we get stuck at that point because we feel as though um, all of our resources are, are pie and that if, if I, I can't give up um, more to give to this group because then I'll have less. When in reality, as we build up communities that have dealt with historical trauma, we have uh, increased prosperity for all of us together. Um, And so I think that we need to really have more of this truth-telling. It makes me think about the 1619 project and how much flack that project received. Again, trying to engage in the the process of truth-telling to get to the point where we see how uh, reparations are needed. Um, And so obviously we have a long way to go in that space.
2: I mean, I think too, Ingrid, I, I, I struggle myself with trying to figure out why we can't truth tell when we all know that these things have happened. Um, and I, 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 it infuriates me, to be quite honest, that we can't have honest dialogue about history that really happened um, without spinning it, right? Um, I, I And I don't know what the next steps are, right? I can tell you um, here in the county I live in, um, just two nights ago, they're trying to ban three books, right? About um, children of color's experiences, because it wasn't quote unquote age appropriate. And it makes me think about what does this, what, what ramifications are we, and thank goodness I will say, the school board voted uh, unanimously not to ban any of them. Um, But what, where is our trajectory going? Where are we moving towards um, when we see this continual uh, resurgence of things that, that we've learned from in the past of this, this isn't going to um, heal anything. It's not going to enhance anything, but it's the stronghold of, we can't talk about it. Right. And I think about my own family experience and think about there was things that we knew we didn't talk about in home, like in home things. And I think about that's what, that's the way we are right now as a country. We have dirty laundry in our house, but we don't want to talk about the dirty laundry in the house. And as if we're afraid that somebody's going to figure out that it was there when we all know it was there. Um, it makes me go, again to the i think i spoke about last week but when we were at the world cup and um there was a iranian reporter that said why are you taught why did you remove this part of the flag when you're struggling with race issues in your own country right now i mean people see this around the globe that we're still struggling with these things but we want to pretend that it's over and it's done and it's in the past so what do you see i mean what do you see if you were to project like um because let I think it's fair to say we have progressed a ton right there is a lot of great things that have happened but there's still so much more that we should do so what do you see as a logical next step for where we where we've where we are and where we can move towards in this healing process well
1: that there's a lot to that question so i there's always I, I always like to think through kind of mechanisms um, when it comes to historical trauma and intergenerational transmission of trauma. There are these very clear um, ways in which this happens. We talk, we've talked about you know the epigenetic changes, right? We've talked about the impact of parenting, which ultimately um, shapes the culture uh, of a group. Um, we've talked about, um, kind of the coping strategies that people from historically traumatic background use. And we've also talked about kind of the social learning aspect where, uh, the children are going to model themselves after the adults in their space. And so this means that a lot would need to to be done if, if we are thinking about healing in a real way. But what I will say is something that people don't often talk about is the survival parenting of, of, of white parents. Right. So, um, as we have these, these, uh, different books, textbooks, we, you know, the, the history one, our, we want our children to learn. The reason why it gets, um, you know, diluted is because people are trying to protect their children from the, um, from the more um you know the people world. Yeah. yeah. from the real world. And so um our our attempt to do that is means that those children get kind of a fantasy of of the human experience and then have to unlearn it when they get older. Or you know they just don't want to, you know, to to take in new information. So they just can't believe that, you know, the school lied to them, the textbooks lied to them, their parents lied to them. Um, And I think this is one of the real ways that we can address this, um, is learning how to tell children the truth. So um, what does it mean to tell children the truth about um, this human experience? How do you tell a child the truth about genocide or, um, you know, microaggressions or discrimination in general um, when do you tell them how old do they need to be and the question is um is that children need to drive this this conversation that um parents need to be truthful because um what what happens is that children again have to unlearn um, when they get older and so that's, that's one thing. We also need to, I think I talked about this before, as far as consulting with hospitals, we need to operationalize uh, historical trauma. We need to be clear that um, that this is a clear, you know, evidence-based phenomenon that requires um, um more uh, attention, um, aggressive uh, treatment in the medical space, uh, more care in the education space. You know, um, we need to operationalize it so that we can have kind of a healing playbook. And uh, these groups that have dealt with historical trauma need X, Y, and Z. And then that way we can have a clear understanding across many sectors. Uh, just think about workplaces and um, how they ensure that they maintain um, or kind of retain um you know workers of color they need to be aware of historical trauma um same thing with hospitals you know if someone has a historically traumatic background that means that they probably have the epigenetic impact which means that you might need to be more aggressive in your um treatment of disease or prevention of disease and so, if we can um, begin to have a clear understanding of historical trauma throughout all sectors and a clear understanding of what it means to address it and heal historical trauma, then this will allow us to have um, a society where we would have less social determinants of health and close the gap when it comes to education and other disparities. Um, I would also say that, you know, as we think about what Possible in in the healing space. Um, we also need to um, begin to have a clear examination of our history, um, not always told from one vantage point. And so we need diverse voices to tell their stories, um, because um, you know one of the ways that white supremacy is so pervasive in our society is that um, the you know, who are those that are writing the textbook? Um, Who are those that are having a fit at the school board meeting because they don't want certain things to be taught in history? Um, We need to acknowledge that um, we need diverse voices at the table um, because, you know, I talked before about how we even started to have this conversation internally at PACE's because of the reaction of white parents at school board meetings around being taught critical race theory, which was not happening, but they believed that it was being taught in schools. And to have people you know, be extremely um, vocal and upset about the teaching of history in school because they don't want their children to know the realities of our past is concerning. Um, and uh, I think that that's this is why this has become so relevant lately is because of the pushback on the on truth telling, um, and I tend to not want to think that it's because every parent is racist. I believe that they are attempting to shield their children from um, something that they believe will be traumatizing to their child, but. In response to that, I would say if children of color and Jewish children and children living in poverty have to deal with um, the historically traumatic past or intergenerational transmission, then surely other children can can learn about it.
2: I agree. And when, when you said, you know, what age? I've been having conversations. My son is now 12 for as long as I can remember. Um, he wrote, read his first book about the Holocaust uh, a year and a half ago. We talked about it and he actually said, man, this is a really scary book. And I said, I understand. Tell me, what do you think is scary about it? Well, all this happened and this happened. I said, but that's what really happened. And we're, we're making a trip to, to Washington DC and the two places he wants to attend. First one Holocaust museum. And I said, Harrison, it's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, but he wants to know more, right? We want to go to the African-American history culture. I mean, he wants to know more. And it's conversations, open conversations, and texts are a great way to have that conversation to my white peers out in the world that say, how do we do it? Um, Well, we can be honest, right? And we can actually have kids read and talk them through it, um, which is a great way to have authentic conversations um, about what's happened. He is as empathetic as I am, and I love that because um, that's where we change, right, is empathy and understanding that what happened wasn't okay and it can't happen again. Um, and that's, I believe, those conversations need to happen early and often.
1: Yes, I agree. I have a four-year-old and we've already started. Well, I want to thank our audience for joining us today. Um, we won't be um, here next week. We can, um, we'll can. we have an encore, but we'll be back uh, in February. And I definitely think that everyone should take some time to honor uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day tomorrow, January 27th. Thank you. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.